0: You are listening to Invisible Not Broken, a chronic illness podcast that will make you want to smile, yell, cry, and laugh, possibly all at the same time. I'm Eva Minkoff, your co-host, fibromyalgia warrior, and founder of Wellacopia, the matching site that helps you find your ideal practitioners for your individual needs. Today's episode is about the view from rock bottom which also happens to be the name of the book recently published by today's guest, Stephanie Tate. Stephanie is a disabled disability advocate who wasn't correctly diagnosed until 15 years into her chronic illness journey. She has Lyme disease and other co-infections, and as a result of the prolonged diagnosis, she has permanent heart damage, neurological damage, arthritis, and a variety of immune dysfunctions. Naturally, her story leads us to talking about changing the healthcare conversation, rallying the disabled voice, and if you've heard any of my previous episodes, not surprisingly, we both bond over being ex-ballerinas and the physical and emotional traumas that come with the professional dance world. Gotta love it. What's most remarkable about this episode is the truly unexpected curves of our conversation. For real, I had never spoken to Stephanie before this interview. And by the end, we both agreed that it was our favorite interview to date. In fact, we spoke for over two hours and easily could have gone for longer, which is why this interview will be split into two parts. As always, we want to remind you that all conversations and health claims on this podcast are based on individual experiences and expertise. Everyone has their own personal and professional truths and should be treated as such. Lastly, stay tuned at the end for a special announcement.
1: Okay, let's get started. It's it's frustrating. It feels like staged honesty a lot of the time.
0: That That's basically what Instagram is in a nutshell. Yes. Gotta say. Look, I'm on Instagram. It exists. I don't have an overall issue with its existence, but it is really perpetuating this this facade of a lot of people's lives even even in this context of trying to be honest, I definitely see that I'm happy to say that in the chronic illness community there, I see a little less of that. I think it's very different here yeah, yeah. it really is something that um, I've heard a lot of people complain about is uh, seeing people's stomas, you know those with IBD and mm-hmm. um, bags and I love all the people that um, do supportive posts around their mm-hmm. bags like with and without but Facebook and Instagram are known for taking down those yeah. posts because they're because like, they call them
1: disturbing F- images. Yeah, 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 and that's kind of the point—not Yeah. <laughs> Not to be disturbing, but to be well, because it normalizes it. And the yeah. more you take them down, the more you continue to promote the idea that there is something disturbing or unusual about this. It's frustrating. I mean, there's still even issues with
0: putting up things on breastfeeding in public. Mm-hmm. It's like, come on, guys,
1: come on. People don't really like to think about the fact that we have bodies, <laughs> unless they are one very narrowly defined specific kind of body. And then outside of that, whether they're disabled bodies, whether they're uh, people of size, what it, it doesn't matter. It's just we don't really want to acknowledge they exist, apparently. It's frustrating. Yeah, um,
0: actually, so I really only started going on Instagram because of Wellacopia. And I was told mm-hmm. you have a business, therefore you should be on Instagram. Uh, <laughs> that's just what I was told. And yeah, I, I understand that. Uh, but in exploring Instagram, trying to get familiar with it, I came across one of apparently the most popular hashtags, which is Fitspo, um, oh. which means fitness inspiration. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fitspo, fitness inspiration. It's more like fitness to make you want to hate yourself for no reason. Um, and like good for you guys who are bodybuilders and like you decided to do that with your lives. Like I have no, sh- I love working out. Um, I love strength, um, and bodies are beautiful even when they're not beautiful, but, uh, actually I've decided to take on this hashtag that I'm surprised doesn't exist really. Um, mm-hmm. that's Wellspo. I'm really I love surprised it. that
1: doesn't exist. Like honestly. change the narrative completely on that. Yeah. Because Instagram did crack down for a while on like thin spo and all of the very pro Anna content. Yeah. And so I feel like all that people did was sort of shift and be like, well, fit spo is different, right? We're not technically focusing on the thinness part, but it was just sort of a back door to get to the same concepts of this is what bodies should look like. Does yours look like this? Actually, I used to be a really serious ballet dancer before I got sick. And something that happened recently in the dance community is that there was sort of uh, this outrage over Instagram has created this weird culture in which dancers want to photograph themselves or take small videos of themselves doing things that will look really visually, like they'll play well for Instagram, right? Mm -hmm. And it's actually pushing them to do things that are really dangerous, first of all, in many of the cases, but also that are technically incorrect. And so they're having this issue with a whole like generation of dancers are coming up thinking that if they want to be the next Misty Copeland, like they got to get out there on social media and post all these photos of themselves and these crazy poses doing all these things. And it's actually training them to dance really poorly because they want to do what looks good for Instagram, not necessarily what's correct. And it's really hard to undo that training, like that muscle memory in your body when you learn to pose a certain way as a teenager who's still learning, it's really hard to undo. So there's been all this pushback in the dance community of like, how do we get rid of this trend of stop posting pictures of yourself doing weird, like half ballet, half yoga poses and just learn to dance correctly, please. It's the basics look boring. Get used to that. Like you need foundational
0: basics. Actually, I think even just there's a foundation and then there's also there's beautiful normal ballet moves. You don't need to be a contortionist.
1: Right? Well, and that's a lot of what it is, is it's very contortiony stuff that plays well. But it's, yeah. Aw, that's you? Yeah, I so I realized oh. you don't know.
0: So everyone, I'm showing her a picture on my phone right now of me as a a ballet dancer. But something I realized we didn't know about each other, although I, I learned about you, is I was a very serious ballet dancer. As was Monica. There's there's actually some sort of a continuity here with uh, some people we've brought on. There's a lot of dancers. I don't think. Huh. That, uh, but uh, yeah. So that was me at uh 15, leg in the air. I like this photo. It unfortunately. It's I feel the need to have this on my phone because otherwise, and this is my insecurity, I feel like people won't believe that I was a ballet dancer. Mm-hmm. which hurts I, I mean I have like a painting I made yeah. up there. Oh bal- ballet is absolutely um, a I would say the main contributor or a major contributor to me having fibromyalgia and hypermobility. Mm-hmm. no doubt and and trauma different kinds of trauma, but I definitely have some good old ballet trauma.
1: It's a tough culture all the way around. Like it just doesn't necessarily encourage making good choices with your body, It does not. Um, it is how I learned
0: that anorexia is a mental illness and not a control issue because I, mm. I it sounds terrible. At the time as a teenager, since I was surrounded by skinny minis, uh, that's what I call them. Amongst other names, I won't say on this podcast. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I tried to be anorexic. Like, I didn't mm-hmm. know what that meant. And and I couldn't understand how, like, how can you guys dance without eating? I have no energy.
1: Yeah, it's <laughs> and, not um, just a pure
0: willpower control thing. No. No, I didn't know. And now, now I'm, I thank God that I did not mm-hmm. develop an, a, a real eating disorder like that. But uh, yeah, I, when... I tell people I was a ballet dancer. I don't know if you've ever used this comparison, but to get them to understand really fast without me talking about it a lot, I say, have you ever seen the movie Black Swan? <laughs> because that was my life with the exception of the psychosis and like trying to murder people or whatever she does. Um, I uh, no, no spoilers there.
1: <laughs> but all of but- the weird, like toxic drama of the culture and the anxiety of every little expectation and you yeah. can't, Well, and when so much of it revolves around your body, it means you carry it outside of the context of dance, right? Like you can't just turn off the fact that you have to keep your body in a certain shape, right? So you leave dance rehearsal and you go into your quote unquote normal life, but you're still constantly aware of the fact that can I eat this? Can I do that? It dominates your brain 24 seven because you can't just take a weekend off from an eating plan or from an exercise plan, right? Like there's no, oh, I'll just step out of the dance world for a minute and not think about it and then come back. And that won't affect me on Monday. You're painstakingly aware of the fact that you have to be on your game 24 seven. And that's a really tough way to live.
0: Especially I'm when really you're glad
1: in- I got sick when I did and didn't get more serious because I can't imagine. I, I can't imagine. It's... Uh, I always have
0: a hard time bad-mouthing ballet because for me it was the equivalent of um, a toxic relationship or honestly my first boyfriend and I we were we were a bit toxic anyway but we loved each other it was just bad We were high school drama yeah like. yeah anyway I actually compare ballet to that relationship where mm. there was a, a, a real love there and a respect for each other in a number of ways but it was bad. It was a bad environment, uh, bad physically, mentally. So I still go to the ballet sometimes, which my mom is like, that's really masochistic. <laughs> it is, it is a bit masochistic, that's for sure. So I end up crying for like a variety of reasons. Yeah. Um, it's definitely, it, I mean, I've like, when it comes to trauma, very simplistic trauma. And I know that's something, well, we can talk about if you want to. Uh, I've had nightmares for the last decade about ballet. Um, I've done work on it now. And so it's very, very infrequent for me to feel that way, but I still pay the price overall. And then I talk about, I don't have kids yet, but my husband and I, we want kids eventually. And I I asked him, would it be okay if our kids danced? And he said, yeah, absolutely. But they're not doing ballet.
1: That's always the hardest question is when someone says, okay, but would you let you, if you had a daughter, would you let her do ballet? And it's so complex. Like, I think for me, the line is when they're little, probably yes. Like, because there are so many good social skills and it's not all bad for your body. In the beginning, ballet really did give me a lot of the skills to learn how to notice my body and what right. my body was doing, which is a good and important skill. I'm working on that now in trauma therapy, right? If anything, I have to relearn how to hear my body's signals. I think a lot of people with chronic illness struggle with that, right? Because you spend so much time trying to push through pain or push through nausea or push through fatigue to live a quote unquote normal life that you almost train your brain to just stop listening to your body's signals and you don't know how to do that well anymore. So there are good things to get out of ballet, but what I don't know. I think my advice for most people is by the time they get middle school-ish, when it starts to taper off into something more serious, if anything, I would just introduce other kinds of dance. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like it's not take dance away, but I think it's really healthy at that point to say, if you want to get serious about ballet, then let's try a year of jazz unless, or let's try a year of tap or let's try a year of something similar and see if what you really love here is dance or if it's ballet specifically because ballet really is that one weird segment where a lot of that toxic culture is very specific to ballet. So, I don't know, like it's not a bad thing to expose little girls to ballet. I just I would be so wary. So wary when it starts to get to that middle school high school age when you're already so self-conscious about your body and you're you're learning how to express yourself physically and I don't know. I think ballet just made it really complicated at that point. I'm, I'm wary. Yeah, and I'm not saying, I'd be like, no, you are banned from ballet. I don't care if it's the thing you love most in the world. Like I'm not insane, but I, I probably wouldn't go down that road unless they
0: were really passionate
1: about it. Yeah. I feel like
0: there are a number of ways in which my mom, who was incredibly supportive, like through all of it, uh, that she says she would have done differently. I, I don't blame her for a minute of it of course um part of that might have been going to a different school it was the best school mm-hmm. uh where I grew up it's a, a very- that makes
1: a difference too it really does
0: yeah I mean I became a really good ballet dancer but obviously it had uh repercussions um and before I move from that I do want to note that <laughs> I think it's really good for boys, for mm-hmm. multiple reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, they get all the attention. So it's the opposite. <laughs> Me too, it's true. <laughs> the opposite. Um, uh, yeah. If And now I know that there's this you know, stigma around boys in ballet, being homosexual. And look, a lot of them are, maybe because they're joined to it. My best friend, um, my best male friend, uh, is a ballet dancer, not gay. Um most and, of the men that I knew that did ballet seriously actually were yeah, not gay. There I'm, were a few, but a majority were straight. Yeah. And regardless, so if you are gay, one, you're in an environment where that is unfortunately I think being homosexual around the country is going to still be weird for a long time. I wish it wasn't. I grew up in New York. <laughs> like so, you know, in New York, uh, obviously. Um, but uh so you're in an environment where that's not the case. And then if you're not, um, you are surrounded by women, <laughs> Um, but also I think more importantly, having a man in a woman's world really pushes for respect around women. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was Balanchine. So I'm talking all about ballet here, but I, I know, know we totally didn't cool. even plan this. <laughs> this is not planned. Uh, But I feel like there's so many ways to relate to actually chronic illness and ballet, mm-hmm. and then also ballet leading to chronic illness. Um, but. Uh, yeah, even Balanchine said um, that something about ballet is all about the woman, and the woman is queen. Hmm. And so in in weird ways, ballet has some very healthy perspectives. That That is one of them that I tried to remember. Uh, and yeah, feeling your body. I got to say, as someone with a very, um, well, chronic illnesses are always physical. They always manifest physically in some way or yeah. other. I tried to explain to my husband, because he never saw me as a dancer, what I missed the most. Hmm. And other than performing, it was actually this sense of, maybe you can figure out a better way to say this, but feeling my body like do something grand, Hmm. uh, even if it's stretching. So I love when I still stretch, which is probably not good for my hypermobility, but I love touching my toes and stuff. And when I run my hands up and down my legs and I can feel like how, I guess, limber I am and then lifting it. It's that whole, like you said, being aware of every part of your body. Yeah. And I, and I love that. And I'm really aware of my body now, but not for good reasons. Yeah. So yeah, that is.
1: I've gotten to a point where it's not so difficult for me to watch ballet. But I know that I will never be in a place where I can go down to like, you know, your local community center and take a nice like exercise driven, like adult ballet class. That's, you know, like the non-serious, like we're just a community group that gets together and we do a little bar work and a couple things across the floor. And, and I thought, okay, that might be nice for me. Get out get when I need to move. I, I can't because it doesn't. I don't know how to say this without sounding horrible, but it doesn't even matter if I'm the best person in that room, right? Like, if I'm very skilled for that room, I will always, always in my brain be comparing to those things that my body used to be capable of. And that will always feel frustrating for me. It will always feel like a loss. Like, I'm not saying I will never take a dance class. It's not going to be ballet, though, because you're right. Like, you're so in touch with your body and you're so aware of like tiny little muscle groups, right? Like that you hardly even knew existed before it gets to the point where somebody can come over and like literally stick a hand on some point point on your arm and say, this needs to move. And you can just contract a muscle that you didn't even realize was there before. I can't do that anymore. And even if I can, my body won't necessarily go that direction anymore. And I don't think that will ever stop just feeling heartbreaking I don't I don't think I'll get any joy out of like well at least I can kind of turn out at least I have better turnout than those old ladies over there like that's not that's not helpful to me I'm just going to be comparing to what my body used to be able to do so I just kind of avoid it entirely now
0: I totally understand that um I can't actually remember if I said this on another podcast yet but I'll say it anyway um like a month or so ago I actually did do that Mm-hmm. Uh, for the first time in, I, I did a few classes like five years ago, um, but otherwise I haven't really danced in close to a decade. Um, and I joined this new gym uh, and it was like the second day I was there, was wondering what classes were going on, because I do like classes because I have that performer streak in me, right? If And I always go to the head, tell them I need to modify, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I walked past one of the studios and there was ballet that was about to start. It was like an extra class that clearly wasn't on the board. And I was like, Oh my God, Oh my God, Oh my God. <laughs> what a like, I was drawn to it really like a moth to a flame. Yeah. Walked in, especially cause people are stretching, getting ready. Oh. And the Music. It was like, it was like being in a dream slash nightmare. Um, mm. But it's, I live in Rochester, New York. Everyone's really nice up here, like, and uh, very supportive. The Everyone there, I could see, like, you know, I hate to say this, but I could see, like, they weren't really ballet dancers, right? right? Um, But the teacher looked legit and I just went up and I said, can I join? And I was wearing socks, which is (laughs) not conducive, if (laughs) anyone, especially on like a wooden floor that is like a marley floor, which is those rubbery ones. Um, No, definitely not the right thing to do, but I started doing my plies, I started to cry. And it was really intense. But again, it was that um, love, but the sadness and the memories. um, And long story short, it was a very, it was actually a really lovely experience. Mm -hmm. But, uh, and I I did well. And then, of course, people came up to me at the end. They're like, oh, wow, you're really good. And I was like, (laughs) and I thought the exact same thing you did, which is, yeah, but.
1: (laughs) Yeah. You have no idea what good means to me, right? Yeah, and it's not even
0: compared to like other dancers out there, it's just oh, yeah, talk about turnout for everyone. Turnout is when, like, you know, your feet go to the side rather than parallel in the front, and I'm in no man's land, I'm not really turned out, I'm not really parallel ever again. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, um, no man's land, and yeah, these little muscle movements overall. You know, I, I think it's important to talk about this because it's not just ballet, we're talking about the loss of our the lives we used to have. Yeah. But the reason I wanna talk about actually this class, I wanna just finish with this part is, um, I thought to myself, okay, what what can I do to change this experience? Hmm. How can I make it a positive one? Because there is a side of me that loves ballet. And here I am in a class where there's not competition. It's very relaxed. It's at my gym. Um, the teacher's very nice. Uh, but she actually is a very good teacher, um, and so I decided, why don't I just focus on what I love about ballet, like moving my body to the music and feeling like light and flowy, and not focusing on the pain in my body, hmm. but the wonderful my things that my body is still able to do. So I was like, whatever my turnout is it is what it is. I'm not going <laughs> to not going to put myself down for it. Um it does make certain moves difficult. There's a reason why turnouts a thing. I am heavier now. Um there are like, you know, there are difficulties because of my body, but I just decided to focus on what is working here. What can I do? What do I modify if I need to? And I've now taken four of them, four of oh, these wow. classes. Yeah. Good for you. I'm uh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm proud of myself for that. Um, before I did the second class, my husband, my mother and my mother-in-law all like sat me down as if I was get, about to get back <laughs> together with my ex. Like seriously,
1: <laughs> they had a ballet intervention.
0: <laughs> seriously. That's exactly, what that's exactly what happened. But I'm hoping that, um, that is a bit of well-spo for some people in that, look, we can't necessarily do what we used to do. And maybe there's a a much greater divide for other people. Like maybe it's not I can't do as well in a ballet class, but it's like I can't get out of bed. Mm. Or, you know, I know that for a lot of people it's there's a totally different spectrum. But I think about in regards to everything that we love, I think there are parts of everything that we love that we can still embody and experience, even if it Mm. is in a totally different format. Or environment, so I did not plan on going here. But I did how, not either. <laughs> this is where it went. When two ballerinas get together, oh. it happens. <laughs> yeah. So, would you like to <laughs> go back and and talk about your story a bit? I tend yeah. to, like to, to start with you have you have a long story. A lot of us have a lot to our story, right? It's whatever you want to talk about and whatever way in which you want to talk about it. Okay.
1: Um, so for me, I mean, I was dancing and I was back in, in high school for me when um, not only was I dancing, but I was doing really well academically. I was pretty gifted um, and bright, had a lot of great plans for college and the future and what I wanted to do with my life. Uh, kind of sky's the limit sort of stuff. And right about the middle of high school, some really weird things started happening. In the beginning, it was what we affectionately called breathing attacks because we had no other real word for it. Uh, one minute I would be fine. And the next minute I would be gasping for air, totally hyperventilating, feeling like I wasn't getting any oxygen from my breaths, which of course, when you're pushing yourself physically with something like dance, that's a problem. <laughs> It's a real big problem. So I saw a couple of doctors. They looked at asthma and didn't really fit. They gave me an inhaler anyways, like a rescue inhaler, because you don't want to leave me empty handed with nothing to do. But uh, the insinuation was sort of maybe this is more psychological than physical, because we don't really see a reason for what's going on here. Uh, So we kind of just tried to power through and ignore it. But more weird, seemingly unrelated symptoms started to stack in. Uh, I was getting injured constantly, which, again, when you're dancing very seriously at that age, you just sort of write that off as, okay, my, my body's being pushed too hard, or I'm going through changes and my body's responding this way. But I started getting injured when I wasn't dancing or pushing my body. Like I'd be walking down the stairs and my knee would just give out. Like That's, that's not normal. Uh and then the fatigue was the real big one. I just started sleeping constantly. It got to the point where I would sleep 10, 11, 12, 13 hours a night and wake up in a complete fog feeling like I hadn't slept at all and I needed more rest. And my parents were a little bit concerned to put it lightly, very frustrated. They went to doctors and said, "What is going on here? And again, partially because of my age, because I was a teenager and I really do believe partially because I was female, uh, the, the comeback every time was, well, that just sounds like depression. I mean, have you tried Prozac? Have you tried, you know, of course she doesn't want to get up and go to class. She's a teenager. Like that's just, she's being a depressive teenager and there really wasn't anybody who was taking very seriously that there could be something physically wrong with me my grades plummeted i just could not keep up mentally with remembering what i had learned the previous day let alone like sometimes it was i would be reading something and i could read four or five lines and realize I, I don't like i've already lost it i have to go back and start over again because i can't remember what i just read four lines ago in this paragraph and i could read it four or five six times before it clicked this was not me this was very unusual um i made it through high school but barely By that point, I, uh, right around 18, 19, had to just pull back on dance. It it wasn't going to happen. And for people that don't go through the whole ballet world, that's a very serious turning point age of like, are you serious about doing this professionally? Or is this more like, I want to be a ballet teacher? Like, you kind of need to figure this out because this is the age where you're either going to pick a path. Or it's gonna be too late. You can't decide at twenty-five. I wanna be a professional dancer. It's too late. It's too late. So because of the timing, it was just sort of okay, I guess that that's it. Like if I'm not in shape to do this now, I'm I'm not gonna do this professionally. This is I'm gonna have to pick a different plan. So luckily I had been very bright and I thought, okay, then I will just buckle down. I'll go to college. Uh, I wanted to go into political science. I basically wanted to be Kirsten Powers for a living. I wanted to be a political analyst and go on shows and explain to everybody, well, this is what that really means. And here's what's happening. And, uh, partway through what little bit of college I did, I took a psychology class and fell head over heels in love, changed gears entirely and said, no, I'm going to do this. I'm going to get a psych degree. I want to be a therapist or I want to work with kids with autism or I don't know, but I'm in love with this. But at the same time, the fatigue was still an ongoing problem. I started living in pretty much chronic daily pain. And so as much as I wanted to be excited about new possibilities, I just couldn't keep up with college. I would consistently start courses, be super invested and like I was that kid who came in way over prepared and raised their hand for everything. And everyone hated me. And within six weeks I was behind and had too many absences and they were dropping me from the course. And this happened over and over and over. And I still didn't have an answer for what was wrong with me other than this is just in your head and you just need to power through it, right? Like mind over matter. You just need to choose to show up even though you're tired. And the more I pushed, the more symptoms started to come in that were not so easily written off as depression. I was uh, 19 when I started having seizures. That was really the first time that doctors went, okay, well, that's a thing. Like, that's real. We can see that. You didn't like will yourself into having a seizure because you were super bummed out today. Uh, so they gave me medication for that and said I had epilepsy started getting sick all the time. And I finally had a doctor that was like, okay, well maybe you have an autoimmune problem. Maybe it's lupus. They looked at that for a bit. They actually started treating me for lupus for a while, which um, when you find out what I actually have at the end of this and find out it's, it's a real bacterial infection, um, when you treat something like lupus, you're essentially trying to shut your immune system down, right? (laughs) Okay. Yeah. So you put the dots together pretty quick there that the literal worst thing you can do to someone who has an active infection in their body is be like, why don't we suppress your immune system? So I got a lot worse and they went, oh, wait, nope, not lupus. Our bad, not lupus. Our bad." Um, (laughs) It's pretty much how doctors work. Like, we're going to try this. And then if you get worse, we're like, so it wasn't that. Are bad. Moving on now. Like it just never happened. It's just part of the process and you just have to accept that, which is so crazy to me. Uh, they looked at MS for a little bit, but I just didn't meet some of the criteria, even though I met others. I just got progressively worse. Uh, I had rheumatoid arthritis. They were talking about one of my hips. You'll probably need to get that replaced a lot younger than is normal because it's just going. Um, I had problems with my hands. Took me a while to get the correct medical words for some of the things that were wrong with me because they felt felt weird or random in a way that I was like, I don't know how to describe this to a doctor without sounding insane, so I'm just going to keep some of this to myself right now. But I found out later that there are words for things like neuropathy where I just don't necessarily feel the object in my hands. I can feel kind of the weight of the thing I'm holding, but I don't like my nerves just don't send that signal when I'm touching something which makes me klutzy as all get out it's hard Ooh. to do things like chop or not spill your coffee down your chest when you're trying to tip your glass instead of use a straw like those are those are hard things to explain to a doctor and when you're already in a position where so many of them are treating you like you're just hysterical this is in your head maybe you just really like attention Uh, There was the insinuation of, well, you did a lot of theater and a lot of dance and you're a nice looking little blonde girl. Nothing seems to be wrong with you. Is it possible you just really like the spotlight and you you miss that? And this is how you're seeking that out now. The more you get that kind of feedback, the more you feel like you can't openly discuss your symptoms with your doctor unless you are 100% sure like this is what this is and So I just sort of stopped asking for help for a bit and got sicker and sicker. And by the time I got to my 20s and I married my husband, uh, the miscarriages started. So I had, it's always interesting to talk about infertility because people assume that that means struggling to get pregnant. There are a lot of ways that you can experience infertility. And in my case, I had absolutely no trouble getting pregnant. If anything, I got pregnant a little too easily sometimes. (laughs) The problem was I just couldn't carry these children to term. And so when you have a miscarriage and it's in the first trimester, doctors just sort of go, okay, well, these things happen. When you have another miscarriage that's in the first trimester, they go, well, there's some basic tests that we can look at to see if there's like a genetic component here something obvious going on. And when those come back negative, it's sort of, again, these things happen sometimes. But I had seven miscarriages to have my two children. And it gets frustrating when at that point, you'd think there would be more of a, all right, there has to be some sort of cause <laughs> But every time it was just sort of, well, these things happen and better luck next time. It, I didn't really get any anywhere with that angle either of approaching doctors and saying, doesn't that suggest that there's something here that we're not seeing? No, it's, you know, women have miscarriages. That's what happens. So uh, we did manage to have two amazing children. Uh, And I don't think that helped either. I think doctors sort of went, "Well, look, you have these kids. Like, then why do you just keep trying for more? Like, stop getting pregnant. Then, like, if you keep having miscarriages, just look—you've got kids. Stop. Don't do that to yourself anymore." Then, did a doctor Uh, really say that to you? Um, not in so many words, but it was very like, "Explain to me why, like, why you want another child so badly. Like, what, what is the driving force here?" And you have these great kids, and Yeah. And it was less doctors at that point than people around me. Mm -hmm. I had one doctor in particular that questioned it, but people around me, oh, they questioned it all the time. Like, how do you, Oh, I had one. Oh man. Asked me point blank. How do you think this is between my two boys? uh, Asked me, how do you think this would make Aiden feel my oldest? Um, That is he not enough? Like you're, you're just sort of ignoring the fact that you have this amazing, beautiful son and you're constantly pursuing this imaginary like second child and putting your family and yourself through hell. Shouldn't he be enough for you? And it's such a strange way to frame that to somebody, right? Like I I don't go to my friends that are married and have no children who are struggling with infertility and be like, is your husband not enough for you? Is that what you're telling him that you don't love him enough because you want a baby like that? We would know that's inappropriate. Why would you say that to somebody about wanting more children? Like I, we wanted more children because we wanted more children. I don't know why, you know, when your family feels complete and ours did not feel complete. We wanted a sibling, at least one. We wanted more, but it's not going to happen for Aiden. That, That should be reason enough. I shouldn't have to justify and explain why I'm worthy of fighting for more kids. It's just, anyways, it was a frustrating process. But throughout the whole thing, I felt like doctors weren't, connecting any of the dots that weren't obviously connected right like there'd be somebody looking at seizures and there'd be somebody looking at miscarriages and there'd be somebody looking at pain and someone looking at fatigue and you know my other doctor who handles the arthritis it it wasn't that they didn't know about the other pieces uh for reference I've predominantly spent most of my time on insurance with Kaiser Permanente and They've actually been really good for many years about sort of centralizing all of their information because when you have Kaiser, it's, it's a little bit different from a lot of other insurance in that they are both your insurance company and the hospitals and the pharmacies and the doctors that you go to, Mm -hmm. like they are their own, all, everything. So when you go to the doctor's office, it's a Kaiser Doctor who's seeing you, which has its own pros and cons. But one of the good things about that is you don't have, you know, your cardiologist that's with some practice over here who doesn't talk to your, you know, uh, your neurologist because they're with a different company entirely down the road. That's not a thing with Kaiser. They all see each other's notes, it's all centralized. So it's not that they didn't have the tools to put the dots together. They just It's almost like they were unwilling to see any of this as connected. It was just, you just have a lot of crazy things that happen to you and I don't know. Like, I don't know why they wouldn't go, well, (laughs) I I, I laugh, but when you talk to people who have never experienced chronic illness, many of them think that this is like the show house, which Mm -hmm. drives me nuts because they all picture that there's like a team that's like, oh wait, she has seizures too? Oh, well then you combine that with the miscarriage, and you get this because this is this other, they don't do that. You guys like, that's not a thing. There are not entire departments at hospitals that are sitting around trying to figure out why people like me are sick. They, They don't do that. They look at the most obvious explanations. And if all of those tests come up negative, especially if you're a woman, it's, well, what do you want us to do? You seem fine you know, try antidepressants, get some therapy. Maybe you're making yourself sick. And this went on for 15 years of my life until I got to the point where I was so sick that I was pretty much in bed four to five days a week, raising two kids. Uh, The seizures were somewhat well-controlled with medication, but never fully controlled. My fatigue was just out of control. I had nonstop pain anxiety I was in the emergency room four or five six times a year with with illnesses that were out of control um, but I had also started to develop really advanced symptoms of my particular condition I had a tremor that would happen very often in my hands uh, my I had a really bad aphasia I couldn't access my words anymore very simple words words that were very basic like hat would just disappear and I, I couldn't I couldn't speak clearly, Um, and I had some heart problems all of a sudden, and again, it was, well, you must have had some sort of infection in your heart, and um, you had this pericarditis this one time, and we can see that on a test, so you're not faking that and um, maybe it left some damage and that would explain some of the issues with your heart and it's all unrelated once again. It's like they just started sort of throwing darts at a board of like maybe you have 20 rare conditions all at once that have nothing to do with each other. That seems logical. And I finally hit my limit. I finally got to the point where I said I can't keep doing this. It's almost like I think for many of us who are chronically ill, you go through sort of The stages of grief, if you will. And I had gotten to the point of acceptance in a way of sort of, this is just my life. It's just going to be like this. There is no answer. They're never going to have an answer. Maybe I really am just crazy. Maybe I really do have 12 random things at once. And I don't know what started the cycle over for me but it was like I got to the point where I couldn't live in acceptance anymore. And I was willing to just sort of jump off the cliff and go all the way back to start and risk going through all of that cycle again if it meant maybe just maybe there was an answer here that they had missed. And I started fighting really hard to get new tests for new things. I started looking at all kinds of crazy options. And what's hard with insurance is when your doctor and your insurance company are the same company, you know immediately if you're going to get approved for certain tests or not. And many of the times I would go in armed with all of my information and say, I fit the profile for this or that, and I'd like this test. And they would go, no, we're not doing that. If you want that test, you can pay for it yourself, but we're not doing that. And one of those tests was the initial test for Lyme disease. I knew somebody whose daughter was quite a bit younger than me, but had started to go through very similar stages to what I went through. And in her case, they were able to figure out relatively quickly that it was Lyme. And she got treatment and she was like a different person. Her life completely changed. And I thought, well, that's something we never looked at. It's worth a try. Let's just get the initial test. And to be tested for Lyme disease is a two-step test. And if you get the correct kind of positive on the first test, then they do the follow-up one. And I went to my doctor with this information and my doctor said, and I quote, well, Lyme is just the diagnosis de jour. Everybody thinks they have Lyme. And it was like, okay, I don't really care what other people think. Like, here's my case and all of my information. I fit the criteria really specifically can we at least just get the test? And my insurance said, no. So fine. Um, I'm convinced enough that there might be something here that, yeah, we'll pay for it out of pocket. Can you just do that test? So we paid for it out of pocket and they did the first step of the test. And I asked my doctor, okay, like what, where are we at? And she told me it's a dead end. It's nothing there. I was very surprised and thought, okay, well, it's another thing we ruled out moving on. And it wasn't until a few weeks later when I was looking at a totally different possible condition that I said, can I get the results from all those tests that we've done so far? And I'm just going to put them in my file, like, so I can keep track of things. Because at this point I was talking to any doctor that would talk to me, like, help me look at my case and see if there's something here you you see. So I get the results actually in front of me of the Lyme test that had been done. And it was very strange. Because there on the form was the listed range for what was standard, like in numbers. And then next to that was the number of where I came back. And it was higher than the listed range for what was standard. And I said, okay, maybe I'm just dumb and I'm not reading this correctly, but doesn't this say that it came back positive then? Because it's not in the negative range. So what does that make it? And my doctor says, oh, well, you're right. It's not negative, but it's not positive either. Yeah, that was my face. I was like, "Um, okay, wait. So there's there's no, and there's yes. And what else is there? (laughs) I'm very confused right now. So they proceed to explain to me that, When they do medical tests like this, they have invented, as I will just label it, they invented this. They have come up with a third range, which they call equivocal, which is their fancy way for saying it's not negative, but it's not positive enough for us to actually want to pursue this and have to pay for any follow-up stuff, so we're just going to put you in no man's land of maybe yes, maybe no. It, It just, we don't know. And what frustrated me was, okay, but Lyme is a two-step testing process, okay? So if I was outside the negative range on the first test, and you're even admitting to me that that puts me in maybe yes, maybe no, wouldn't the logical thing to do be to do the second test then that's more, uh, more specific, that's going to give us a clear answer? And once again, my insurance said, yeah, no, we d- we're not going to do that. And then this time, they didn't even really give me the option to pay for it out of pocket. It was simply we, ourselves, we're not going to do that. And so I thought I'd hit a dead end. And luckily, I had been doing enough research on Lyme, thanks to my friend of a friend. And I knew that there was a company called Agenix that specializes in testing for Lyme. It's a private lab, and you can pay them to do it. And it has nothing to do with your insurance. So we pulled the money together and started from scratch and did both steps of the Lyme test through hygenics. And the thing about talking about Lyme for people that are familiar with the disease is there are a lot of people who believe that they have Lyme who don't have what the CDC would consider a positive test. Okay. And I am not one of those people who's going to go out there and go, and those people are nuts and they don't know what they're talking Uh, It's fully possible that many of them do have Lyme. The testing is notoriously inaccurate. It's so inaccurate that a number of states on the East Coast where Lyme is really prevalent have enacted laws that say, if you get a Lyme test, your doctor has to give you a piece of paper with it that actually says, if this test comes back negative, it doesn't mean you don't have Lyme. That's how inaccurate the testing is. So I'm not going to discount those people's stories, but I want to be super clear. I'm not one of those people. When I got my lab results back, I have what the CDC considers a positive Lyme result. And I brought that back to my doctor and said, look, it's Lyme. And they said, but we didn't do this test. So how can we actually know that you have Lyme? Because for all we know, like you could have sent them anybody's blood or they could have tested the wrong blood or like, we don't even know how this lab does their tests. And we would need a positive result from us. And so I said, fine, then let's do the test. And once again, they said, we did that first test. We consider that a negative. You don't qualify for that test. And I thought very seriously about fighting that, but I had done enough research into Lyme and the Lyme community and my insurance to know it wouldn't have mattered anyways, because all they were going to be willing to do was say, here's 30 days of antibiotics at tops, at absolute tops. And then once you take those pills orally, you should be fine. Everything's all better now. Because unfortunately, there is an enormous debate about whether chronic Lyme or late stage Lyme is even a thing. And so Because of the way insurance companies work, this is not a problem with my insurance company. This is every single one of them in this country. And even in other countries, Canada has similar issues. The UK has similar issues. If there's any way, any little loophole that they can dive into to say, we don't have to pay for this, they're going to do it. They're going to do it. So if there's a debate about whether your condition is even real, I mean, that's not just a loophole. That is like a giant barn door flung open to say, we don't pay for those things ever, 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 ever. So even if I had fought them on it, they weren't going to cover any of the treatment that I needed anyways. They were going to throw a couple of weeks of oral antibiotics at me and say, you should be fine now. So we went outside my insurance company and we started investigating who reputable, which is really hard, but reputable Lyme physicians were. Because again, once you are pushed outside the normal medical system, man, it's the wild west out there. Because if you're not getting your treatment primarily from your usual physician, I mean, anybody can jump in and claim they have a cure for Lyme. There are people that will tell you what essential oils to take for Lyme. I mean, it's nuts out there. There are, I, I will not say that it's all good medicine. There are quacks out there. Who people swear up and down have cured their Lyme. And it's really hard to sort through and find out who's who. But we did our digging and we went to a trusted friend who had seen their Lyme improve. And we raised a ton of financial support from friends and family because it was excruciatingly expensive and we could not afford it. And we threw ourselves into treating Lyme. And I won't say that I'm like, all better. That's totally unrealistic <laughs> standard, but I have seen enormous improvement. Um, my tremor comes and goes. It's, it's fairly rare. Uh, it's more so in the winter but um, it, and, and when I don't sleep, uh, but it's not a constant thing anymore. I um, still struggle a lot with, with chronic fatigue, uh, not anywhere near as badly as I used to, Uh, I'll be very honest and say that's also in part, oh boy, this is a risk saying this one too publicly. But, um, I also found a really sympathetic doctor who looked at the research I brought him from Europe and recognized that in patients like me with chronic fatigue that is likely to never go away, antidepressants don't do squat, but you know, what does help stimulants. So even though this is a risk, he is prescribing me Adderall off label to help with the inability to get up out of bed and nothing has changed my life more than being on a stimulant, Uh, nothing at all. Uh, But I did a lot of months of intensive Lyme treatment and my arthritis improved, my memory improved. Some things, some things will probably never improve because when you leave a bacteria to run rampant in your system for 15 years, like there's damage that you can't just reverse. I will probably never, Um, fix the heart damage that I have, for example. There are certain neurological symptoms that are never going to go away because when you lose those parts of your brain, they don't just regrow. Like your brain literally has to reallocate how it uses the space in the brain and that's the best you can do. Um, So there's some things that are never gonna get better. And I've had to learn to live with that, that I will live as a disabled person for the rest of my life Because for 15 years, nobody was willing to put the dots together. And more than that, most of them weren't even willing to believe me that something was wrong. That this wasn't all in my head. And when I think about that too hard, I still get very angry. I still get very angry sometimes at feeling like, I don't know how many years of my life were just completely robbed from me, robbed from my children how many of my children were robbed from me because nobody was willing to take me seriously and really work on finding a solution instead of just telling me, well, it's not this. So, okay, fine. It's not that thing that you tested for. Great. Rule that out. But what is it then? And I never got that follow-up part. I basically had doctors that I think the number one bottom line for them was if we don't know what it is, then it isn't. Then it's just in your head. It's just you. If we can't tell you what it is, it's probably nothing. I never had one that said, if I don't know what it is, that's on me. That's my problem. I need to keep looking then. That's not you. You're not crazy. I just don't know what's wrong with you. And I need to work on that. And we can keep working on that together. But I never... I never got that. So I don't know what life would potentially look like for me if it hadn't been 15 years, if it had been one year or two years. I don't know. And I probably will never know. But that's sort of how I got to where I am today.
0: Thanks for listening to another episode of the Invisible Not Broken podcast. If you haven't already, please take the next 30 seconds to do these two things subscribe to our episodes, and share this episode with a Spoonie friend. Stay tuned for our episode next week, which is part two of my conversation with Stephanie Tate. And guys, that's when we get real on a whole other level. This episode was brought to you by Wellacopia. Join the movement to help chronic illness warriors like you, like us, match with the right care. Getting the right care when faced with a chronic illness can be one of the most challenging things you may ever do in your life. It's hard to know who to trust, and dealing with providers who don't understand or even believe what you're going through can make you feel frustrated, defeated, and even broken. I don't believe it has to be this way. I started Wellacopia because I was suffering too, and knowing the reality that it takes an average of 10 years for an accurate diagnosis really pissed me off. That's 10 years of suffering, 10 years of doubting, 10 years of missing out on a full life. We built Wellacopia to match people with practitioners who are best for them, not just as patients, but as people, because the patient practitioner relationship is a human relationship. Matching with the right doctor should be treated with just as much care as matching with the right life partner. We've only been live for a few months and already we have people seeking matches in 42 states and five countries. But this mission and momentum cannot continue without your help. In order to bring on enough practitioners to support Wellacopia's growth around the country and the world, we need you to refer amazing medical and wellness providers you love and trust so that others can benefit from them like you have. Thousands of you are listening to this. If each of you recommend just one practitioner, hundreds of thousands of chronic illness warriors like you will benefit. You may even be saving someone's life. If you don't have a health professional to recommend, you can still help us help you. The more people we have on Wellacopia, the faster the community grows, and the better the matches will be. Joining takes just two minutes, it's free, and whether you recommend a practitioner or not, just by signing up, you're making a difference in the future of healthcare. Join our mission to humanize healthcare. Go to Wellacopia.com. Thank you to those of you who have joined already. If you have any questions or feedback, or want to partner with Wellacopia's mission in any way, feel free to send me an email directly, eva at Until next time, be kind, be gentle, be badass.